Finn, uh, then log on to the Linguali app on your phone and uh, make sure you're on the Linguali Wi-Fi network as well and then you'll be able to hear Simon doing the live interpretation uh, this morning. Now, birthdays, Father's Day, Mother's Day, Christmas are all events on the calendar, aren't they, where they evoke certain expectations. My lovely wife, Ness, celebrated her 40th birthday on Friday and no doubt she had certain expectations of how that day was going to go and I believe that those expectations were, were met as best as they could have been. I remember growing up where I really wanted a new skateboard for one of my teenage birthday years and I dropped hints everywhere to make sure those expectations would become a reality. Uh, I would point out to my parents all of my friends who had skateboards. I would cut out pictures of magazines and leave them strategically around the house so that uh, they would know that that was what I was expecting uh, for my birthday as well. And then when the day came, I had very clear expectations. And out came the presents, the new clothes, the socks and the underpants, but no skateboard. But then at the end of the day, my mother would keep it as a surprise, out came a longer present wrapped and you could see the wheels protruding through the wrapping paper. And I'm like, I know what that is. And I ripped the paper off and there was my skateboard. My expectations were met and I felt like colourful balloons floating in the air, filled with contentment and happiness. But when our expectations are not met, we so often feel the reverse, don't we? Like someone is popping our balloon, destroying our happiness. We feel confused, we feel hurt, we feel annoyed. And I want to suggest that it can be the same with God as well. Maybe when you became a Christian and put your trust in God, you thought that life would be all colourful balloons filled with joy and happiness and everything would be wonderful. But it hasn't been like that for you. And so maybe you're feeling a bit confused, maybe even angry at God. Some of you might be even on the verge of giving up on God because he hasn't met your expectations. Now, whoever you are today, I'm certain that we've all had issues or problems with God at some point in our life. You may have heard the line, if I were God, I would have done this differently. Or the line, I can't believe in a God who... dot, 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 and fill in whatever blank that might be. Because sometimes God does things that we don't understand. Sometimes He does things which we feel are, are not right. They're disturbing even. And I think one of the most disturbing things that we see God doing is in Joshua chapter 6. Have a look again at verse 21. I don't know if you noticed it as Tina beautifully read that out. Verse 21, the result of the taking of Jericho. They completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. Every man and woman, both young and old. And every ox, sheep and donkey. Everything is destroyed. Women and children included and the donkeys. Now, I'm less worried about the donkeys, but the women and the children. How do you deal with that as a reader of God's Word? Why would God do that, authorise that, allow that to happen? You know, we think of the, 
the walls of Jericho tumbling, tum- tumbling down like in the kids' comic video. But it's not a G-rated story, the story of Jericho. If anything, it's MA. It's horrific what you can potentially visualise happening. And rightly so, many people have an issue with it. Uh, you may have heard of the famous atheist Richard Dawkins. When he reads the Old Testament and the book of Joshua in particular, he concludes this. The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic racist. Infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent, bully. I don't even know what some of those words mean. Is he right? Is God a capricious, malevolent bully? How do we make sense of what happens in the fall of Jericho? Can you believe in a God who allows that to happen? Well, I want to try and show you this morning, not only can you believe in a God like this, you must believe in a God like this. So let's have a look at the story in detail or a little bit more detail. We're going to start with the strategy at the beginning of Joshua chapter 6. The Israelites are camped just outside the city walls of Jericho. The city is strongly fortified. It's locked up tight. No one leaving or entering. And then the Lord speaks to Joshua and gives him the strategy for taking the city. And it's a very strange one indeed. Have a look at verse 2. The Lord said to Joshua, look, I have handed Jericho, its king, and its fighting men over to you. March around the city with all the men of war, circling the city one time. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry seven ram's horn trumpets in front of the ark. But on the seventh day, march around the city seven times while the priests blow the trumpets. When there is a prolonged blast of the horn and you hear its sound, have all the people give a mighty shout then the city walls will collapse and the people will advance, each man straight ahead. I hope you notice that this is a quite a strange military strategy for God's people to undertake. There's no call for the building of battering rams or siege towers or arm-to-arm combat training or creating bows and arrows for the advance. None of that. Rather, the call is for Israel to walk, to March around the city once and then go back to camp. And then the next day, march around the city once and then go back to camp. And they do that for six days and they must have looked like complete fools. What on earth are they doing? And then on the seventh day, they had to do something a little bit different, not just march around once, but seven times. And then after the seventh time, blow the trumpets loud, make a big shout and the walls will come tumbling down. I can't imagine the generals of any army of any nation in world history that would think that this is a good strategy for taking a city. It's an absolute crazy plan. And yet it's God's plan. Why? Why such a a weird strategy? Well, I think we're meant to see in the taking of Jericho. This is not just a human military conflict, another battle, 
that would be fought in world history. God is doing something here. God is on the move. God doesn't need to use the human weapons of warfare to win his battle, just like he doesn't need to use the engineering skills of humanity to stop the waters of the Jordan River. God is all-powerful. He can do what he wills. And I think the six days of marching and then the seventh day and the seven times of marching is meant to point us to there is something significant, a sign of what is happening here. And you remember the ultimate time in the Bible's history where we talk about six days and the seventh day. Creation itself in the book of Genesis. I wonder whether we're meant to see in the battle of Jericho that God is on the move in a new creative event through the fall of Jericho. Because we need to remember that Canaan was always meant to be more than just a nice place to live. And Israel were meant to be more than just a displaced people longing for a new home. The people of Israel and the land of Canaan in the plan of God were meant to be the beginning of a new creation. Israel, a new Adam. Canaan, a new garden of Eden. And together being a beacon of light to a dark world. A beacon of light of what life with God could look like if you came and put your trust in him. I also think that the six days is also another mark of God's grace in and of itself. God is giving the people of Jericho six days to turn back to him. Maybe get into Rahab's house and be saved. Giving them a day, another day, another day, another day. The army is camped outside, but God is giving them time to repent if they will. And no doubt the six days is a test for God's people as they weirdly march around a city once for six days straight, looking like, what on earth are we doing? It's a test whether they will trust God or whether they will revert to their own human methods and wisdom and strategies. And of course, the Lord still works in mysterious ways at times, doesn't he? In the New Testament, Paul reminds the Corinthians that the very high point of God's activity in the world looked like absolute foolishness to the world, the cross of Christ. Have a look at 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul says this. Verse 21. For since in God's wisdom the world did not know God through wisdom, God was pleased to save those who believe through the foolishness of the message preached. For the Jews ask for signs and the Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. Yet to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is God's power and God's wisdom. Because God's foolishness is wiser than human wisdom and God's weakness is stronger than human strength. Marching around those city walls must have made them look like fools. But God uses weak things and foolish things to shame and embarrass the strong. So the glory always goes to him. <coughs> now if we turn back to Joshua, despite how weird it must have looked, the people of Israel obey the Lord. They follow his strategy and everything happens just as God said it would. 
Let's have a look at those verses again of verse 20 in verse 21 of Joshua chapter 6. This is the siege of Jericho. You might even call it the slaughter of Jericho. So they've marched around the city and the people shout and the trumpets sound. And when they heard the blast of the trumpet, the people gave a great shout and the wall collapsed. The people advanced into the city, each man straight ahead, and they captured the city. And they completely destroyed everything in the city with the sword. Every man and woman, young and old, and every ox, sheep, and donkey. The battle doesn't last very long. Because the Lord has been the one bringing this to fulfillment. But there's our problem verse again, isn't it? Completely destroyed everything in the city. Man, woman, child, ox, sheep and donkey. (coughs) How does that sit with you? Why does God do that? Well, if you remember that this is not just a normal military conflict, that this is a sign pointing to God's activity in the world. You remember if the land of Canaan was meant to be like a new creation, a new garden of Eden, and Israel, God's new holy people, pointing people to the glory of God and the hope in him, then like with the the flood of Genesis, if the six and seven days echo the creation in Genesis, the destruction of Jericho to me seems like it echoes the flood uh, of Genesis. Because the land needs to be cleansed first before it can become this new creation of God. And far from this being a moment of rage by a capricious God, according to Richard Dawkins, we must remember in the context of biblical history, God has been so patient with the people of Jericho, so patient with the people of Canaan. In Genesis chapter 15, God talked about there would be a day when the people of Canaan would be judged for their wickedness. But he tells Abraham in Genesis 15, that time is not yet. In fact, it's going to be 400 years before I bring my judgment on the land of Canaan. Why? The end of that passage, because the iniquity of the Amorites, the people living in the land, has not yet reached its full measure. God is just. He is giving time, 400 years. Now, we can lose sense of how significant and how long that time is. Where were we as a nation 400 years ago? As a current nation, we didn't exist. Our first peoples were here, yes, but no white settlement, no migration from Europe or Asia. 400 years ago. God was patient with this group of people for 400 years. But now, their time has come. And just before the taking of Jericho, before the book of Joshua, in the book of Leviticus, God says the time has come. He cannot put up with their wickedness and evil any longer. That he is going to punish them for their sin. And there's a stark image of them being vomited out of the land. That their time has come. But it's also important to note that Israel have no reason to boast in their new power or position like, hey, aren't we great? We get it and they get kicked out. 
Do you remember when Joshua met the commander of the Lord's army at the end of chapter 5? And Joshua says to the commander of the Lord's army, are you friend or foe? Are you for us or are you against us? Do you remember what the commander said? Neither. It's not so much that God is on Israel's side and not other people's side. It's not that God is so much fighting for Israel. God is on God's side. And God is fighting for his glory, his honour and his plan and purposes. And should Israel, like Canaan, turn their back on God and start to do things their own way, what happens to Jericho will no doubt happen to the people of Israel. And there's a warning in chapter 6 about that, and we're going to see actually next week in chapter 7, that's exactly what happened to the people of Israel. And sadly, we know that Canaan, under the rule of Israel, would never become that new garden of Eden. They would never be that ultimate light to a dark world of what life could look like in friendship with God. And we know that they too would be vomited out of the land in judgment as well. And so I think we're meant to see in the battle of Jericho, the judgment of God on Jericho, the judgment of God on future Jerusalem and their expulsion from the land. Just a shadow, a signpost pointing us forward to the need for cleansing and judgment on the whole world before there can be a new creation, before there can be a new heavens and a new earth, the home of perfect righteousness and peace and justice. And we know that day is still yet to come. And it won't be as pleasant, if you can say that, as Joshua chapter 6. But there is one other thing to see uh, in this chapter. And that is that in the midst of a terrifying and yet just judgment, there are glimmers of grace. Jump down to verse 25. We didn't read it, but let me show it to you. Verse 25. We saw it in the kids' video clip. After the city has been destroyed, or almost on the verge of being destroyed, verse 25, however, what a great word, Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute, her father's household, and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua had sent to spy on Jericho, and she lives in Israel to this day. There is death and destruction all around, and yet here is one house, with one woman and all of her family and friends have kept safe. Why are they safe? Well, because they have thrown their lot in with God and his people and God made a promise to them that in the midst of judgment, if they remained in that house, trusting in him, they would be safe and secure. And they are. Like the rainbow after the flood, there is hope even in the midst of judgment. Hope found in the promise and grace of God. And that, I think, is the big idea of Joshua chapter 6. God's judgment is certain and fixed. We need to acknowledge that and not deny it. But God's grace is clear and rich at the same time. Now, of course, most people don't have any issue with the second part of that clause. God's grace is rich. We love that idea of God's love and kindness and mercy. But lots of people have a problem with the first aspect of that sentence, that God's judgment is coming and is fixed guaranteed certain 
And I've noticed over the years to try and avoid the idea of God as judge, people tend to one of two directions. On one hand, they trivialise God's judgment. You know, joke about it. Oh, don't need to worry about hell. All my mates are going to be there and it's going to be the biggest party of all. Or if you've ever watched the Simpsons comics, they often trivialise heaven and hell and hell is a place where there's an all-you-can-eat donut store. You know, we don't like the idea of judgment and so we trivialise it. On the other hand, if we don't like it, like Richard Dawkins, we just attack it outright. I cannot believe in a God that would allow people to be punished in hell for all eternity. And we just reject it outright. But let me share with you some implications I think we see from Joshua 6 in the character of God, particularly when it comes to his judgment. The first is this. God takes no pleasure in judgment. God takes no pleasure in judgment. Martin Luther once described God's judgment as his alien work. That is, it's not his core activity. God's core at the very heart of who God is, is love, Father, Son and Spirit, relationship. Love is at the core of God. His judgment is kind of his alien work. And I think he's right because in passages like Ezekiel 33, we see this, that God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that they turn to him and live. And we can see that even in the story of Jericho. God waited 400 years before bringing the sword of judgment on a wicked and evil people. And then after that 400 years, he gave them six more days. Six days to... Maybe go to Rahab's house and be protected. Or open the gates and wave the white flag and submit to him. But they don't. And God has not changed, friends. Yes, there is a judgment day still to come, but the reason it hasn't come yet is because God is still giving people time. He's patient. In 2 Peter 3, we read that He is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. Don't think that God gets some kind of pleasure and joy from punishing people for their rejection of him. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. He warns people so that they turn to him and embrace his love and grace and the joy of living in friendship with him. But if you constantly turn your back on him, the judgment will and sadly the second implication is this that some doors remain locked the reason that hell is going to be a reality for some is that they deliberately locked the door of their heart to God you think about the people of Jericho they knew what God did at the Jordan River they'd heard the stories of what God did at the crossing of the Red Sea they were trembling with fear at the sight of the Israelite army camped outside their walls and yet they did not wave the flag of surrender they stubbornly locked the gates of Jericho only Rahab humbled herself and so was saved And I think that's the picture of hell and the judgment to come as well. Despite all that God has done for this world, people still lock the doors of their heart to him. Even on judgment day, the book of Revelation has this picture of judgment day uh, and people still blaspheming the name of God despite what's happening on judgment day. And they did not repent and give him glory. 
You know, God never holds people in hell against their will. People are in hell because they want to be there, because they refuse to be in the joyous presence of the Lord. C.S. Lewis once wrote a book called The Great Divorce where he talks about hell and the judgment of God. And he says, look, if hell had gates, then the gates are locked, yes, but they're not locked on the outside by God. They're locked on the inside by the people because they refuse to leave. And isn't that the picture of Jericho? The people have locked their own gates, refusing to come out and surrender. We must pray that God opens people's hearts to see who he is. And the third implication is that judgment is necessary. We may not like it. We may not like talking about it with our family or our friends. And you may not even like this sermon today. But I want you to know that it's absolutely necessary that we talk about it and that we believe in it. Uh, Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian, has said this. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. Now, what he means by this is, when you are faced personally with injustice, what's your natural posture? You want to get justice. And so you, you take vengeance. You know, you poke me in the eye, I'm going to poke you in both eyes. That's the natural human posture towards justice. But if you don't have a God who one day is going to right all wrongs and put an end, judgment, then all you've got is personal vengeance. And all that is for eternity is a cycle of violence. You hurt me, I hurt you. Or you believe in karma, what goes around comes around. You know, I do something wrong in this life, well, in my next life, someone's going to do something, and it just perpetuates into all eternity. The only hope of ultimate justice is if you believe in a God who will put an end to it once and for all. It's absolutely necessary for us to believe in God's judgment if we want to hope for the future. God's judgment is fixed, but God's grace is also rich. And if you're not yet a follower of the Lord Jesus, then I want you to hear clearly this morning through the croakiness of my voice and the, the emotion that's there and I don't enjoy saying it but you're in grave danger you're in grave danger irrespective of whatever you believe about God unless you call out to him for mercy you're in the same precarious position as the people of Jericho. You're in grave danger. The sword will fall. But God is giving you time, even this day, to turn back to him. I don't know whether you've got another six days or six years or 60 years. But I know the sword will fall. Don't wait. Call out to God for mercy. And unlike Rahab, you can have even more confidence that God will show you mercy because the sword of judgment has already fallen. It's fallen on one man who stood in your place, taking
taking the judgment that you deserve. Christ died for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. You know, it's a bit like a bushfire. Here's a photo of a few years ago in the Blue Mountains when there was a raging bushfire coming through. Firefighters will tell us if you're facing a bushfire, the only true safe ground to stand on is ground that has already been burned. It's why firefighters will often backburn around people's houses so that when the fire front comes, it can't burn down the houses because the ground around it has already been burned. That's like God's judgment and God's grace for you this morning. There is a fire front coming. God's judgment is fixed. It is coming. But you can be saved because there is ground that you can stand on that has already been burned. You can come under the shield of the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ where he takes the judgment that you deserve so that you never have to. God's judgment is fixed, yes, but his grace is absolutely rich. Don't come to Christ just out of fear of avoiding God's judgment. That might be the first step as we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Come to the cross because it's an expression of God's love and patience and kindness to you. Come to Christ today. And for those of you who already have, who you know the security of sins forgiven, debt cancelled, can I encourage you to leave your old life of rebellion and sin. Leave it in the rubble of Jericho. Leave it in the decaying tomb. And walk out wearing the new life of Christ. Follow him, even when you don't see or understand everything. Keep trusting him. Because you can be now, by God's spirit, what Israel could never be. A new creation. A new garden of Eden. A light to the world. You have a trumpet. You have a message inside that just wants to get out. Yes, warning people of coming judgment, but also proclaiming the good news that salvation is possible. So if you are a follower of Christ, let me encourage you, don't just march around this building today. March throughout our city, blowing the trumpet of the good news of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whilst there's still time, urge people to come to him. just pause now in the quiet of our hearts there are some of us that know that we are not right with God and we've been reminded of the day of coming judgment father we thank you that judgment will come we thank you for the assurance that, that means all right all wrongs will be right that there will be ultimate justice one day we thank you for that but we know that evil and wickedness is not just out there, but it's in the depths of my own heart. And I'm sorry. But we thank you for your mercy and grace that is always available. And some of us need to embrace that today. So in the quiet of our heart, if that's you, just say in your mind and in your heart, I repent of my sin. I turn to Christ. 
I'm thankful to him that he has paid the debt, the judgment that I deserve, that I might be free, that I might be saved, that I might know the joy of life with the Lord. And for those of us that, is a, that have committed to Christ and are walking in his ways, even when we don't understand everything that you are doing, Lord, help us to keep trusting you and give us air in our lungs to blow the trumpet of the Lord Jesus and to point people to him all the days of our life. In his name we pray.